Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. What is up, everybody? Welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. Recording at 3 p.m. on a Sunday. Uh, not exactly our usual time. We will post this, of course, on um, you know travinvichorror.wordpress.com and have it uploaded to Spreaker. But we had the opportunity to talk to someone um, about the Star of Rock murders today uh, who will be calling in about five minutes' time. And we wanted to revisit Star of Rock, to be honest with you. There's just so many things to talk about with this story. It's such an interesting story uh, that I would be remiss if I did not... Um, you know, do this show and revisit Starved Rock. Uh, if you recall, on, let's see, July 11th, we actually spoke to the history cop, Ray Johnson, uh, who was prepping for uh, a little uh, viewing party of the American Ripper show that debuted that, that night. And, of course, he was on there uh, talking about H.H. H. Holmes and possible connections to Jack the Ripper. Spoiler warning, he does not feel as connected. However, our dear friend Jeff Mudgett does. So uh, go back and watch that. But, excuse me while I took a drink. I'm drinking gumption today. Woodchuck hard cider. You guys know I like that. So, and here in about an eh, hour and a half, going to get some margaritas. It's going to be a good night. But anyway, and when when we had Ray on here, uh, we talked about how on March 14, 1960, you know, you had three women from Riverside who ventured out to Starved Rock State Park uh, for a few days of rest and re, you know, recreation, relaxation, whatever you want to call it. They stayed at the uh, park's lodge. Uh, they checked into their rooms, and then they ate lunch at the inn's dining room. And then they hiked a few wooded miles across the snowy trails into St. Louis Canyon. Of course, most of this information is coming from Steve Stout, uh, another friend of ours who uh, wrote the Star Rock murders in 1982. So it's been that long. Of course, the killings took place on March 14, 1960. So uh, 22 years following that, the book comes out. Well, anyway, two days later, after they go out on this hike, uh, the, these three women were found beaten to death in a cold canyon crime that literally sent shockwaves across the Illinois Valley. And ultimately, it changed the way Illinois State Police investigated crimes. Uh, you had this massive investigation that lasted for months. Um, and then about eight months after the investigation started, a young dishwasher at the lodge where these women were staying, uh, Chester Otto Wigger of Oglesby, was eventually charged and convicted in the case. Um, he was sentenced to life in prison, where he still remains today. He is uh, I believe 77 years old, or maybe I'm thinking of George Romero, but he's up there regardless. He's in his 70s now, um, and he's the second longest tenured um, inmate so in Illinois. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people don't like to talk about the Star Brock murders because Star Brock's a very popular, you know, park out in Illinois. In fact, uh, from what I understand, it's the only one that turns a profit in Illinois, so it actually helps pay for the other parks there. 
Um, you know, it, it was a tragedy, absolutely. But there's still mystery surrounding the whole thing. I mean, there's still people to this day that either feel like, A, Chester Weger was innocent, or B, um, that he didn't work alone. And Ray Johnson was actually among them. And Ray Johnson's a pretty schooled guy as far as crimes go. Uh, and he kind of talked about uh, how um, in, in situations like this where an accomplice does not, or, or where, yeah, where somebody does not roll over on their accomplice, uh, is that it's usually a family member. Um, you know, they take the fall. In fact, he's seen people um, take the fall for people who didn't actually do anything. So, you know, in their own family, uh, just to, uh, you know, save them from what happened. So, uh, it, it, it was, it's an interesting story because one, one of the interesting things about it was the fact that Chester Wigger is actually smaller than all three of these women, and he used a broken tree branch in order to kill them. Um, here in just a second, we are going to have our buddy on. I hear him. I see him, and he'll be on. He's getting through the login process. Hunter James Cox uh, is calling in, and we'll be here now. What's up, Hunter? How you doing, buddy? Hey, what's up, Travis? How you doing, man? I am surviving. You know, it's just another day That's in it. paradise. Huh? I'm in Louisville, <laughs> Kentucky. I understand you're in L.A. right now. Is that right? That's that's correct. And I'm assuming you're probably drinking too, yeah? <laughs> hey, how did you know? How did you know? I picked up a drink oh, for the show. I've been watching a few of your podcasts, man, and every time you guys are always mentioning it. <laughs> yeah, there you that's go. what we do. That's what we do. Sweet. But you know what? These these true crime ones, we try to take them really seriously. I mean, because it is a serious topic. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we right. kick things around a little bit. And your documentary was really serious. And I have to be honest with you, right. in order to prepare for the first podcast I did on the Starved Rock Murders, um, I probably watched your podcast, or your uh, your documentary about ten times. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it was full of valuable information. And, of course, Steve yeah. was part of that, too. Um but I guess I should start from square one. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? You know, kind of introduce yourself to everybody? Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, I actually work as a director. I went to school in Chicago, Columbia College, Chicago. Moved out to L.A. About, about three years ago. And I've been just kind of working on different scripted TV shows, feature films, commercials here and there. And kind of writing and directing my own material on the side. So that's so, kind of what so I've been originally doing. originally from but, Chicago. Yeah, exactly. And then a lot of people know me from this uh, this thing that happened in high school where I was the bulldog mascot. And uh, the news media got uh, footage that I had put together with me as the mascot. And mm-hmm. the school kind of dismissed me and all that, but it kind of just got overblown with the social media and everything. And that's kind of what compelled me to go into filmmaking. So, yeah. and that was it. Makes, makes sense. Okay, so for a guy from Chicago, you know, yeah. you've got these murders that took place March 14th, 1960. And exactly. I have to be honest with you, outside of that area, and, and maybe not even in that area, it's not well known. I mean, like uh, Ray Johnson, he's called the History Cop in, in Chicago. He told me that he hadn't even heard of it until up to like five years ago. And that's crazy because from the research that yeah. I did and the things that I found out, it was like the OJ case of its time in 1960. Exactly. How do you exactly. come across this? Okay, well, I was um, in my sophomore year of college, and my parents, oh, I knew that I had to do a documentary. It was just school curriculum and whatnot. And I thought, okay, well, I need to have a story. And my parents, we went out to Luminati's in Chicago the night before I went out to school. 
And they said, have you heard about the Starved Rock murders? And that's how it all came about. After that, I did some research, found Steve Stout on Facebook, I think, contacted him, asked if he would like to interview with me. And then after that, it just kind of, I figured out from there, it was just a small scale operation at that point. And I found out that I needed to expand the project into this feature that you are now seeing online. And I'm still continuing to work on it, actually, because, I mean, it's, it's never ending. There's always somebody that's got something that I need to incorporate into the film itself. So that's how the uh, initial idea came about. Well, it's interesting because Chicago is, is, I mean, it's a wealth of true crime. You're talking about the, you know, the St. Valentine's Day massacre. You're talking about Gacy. You know, uh, you're talking about, uh, let's see, I mean, we could go on and on, but, you know, H.H. Yeah, yeah. H. Holmes, why this one in particular? What what about this one? Is it the mystery surrounding it, or, or what exactly, you know, drew you to this one in particular you know, as opposed to one of those like, other well-known ones? It's a lot like what your uh, podcast spoke about um, in other episodes. They were, um, you know, it had an effect on the entire community and the nation. You know, it changed the way the judicial 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 system actually works um, in terms of like different um, laws like the electrocution and all that um, things of this case had a dramatic effect across the nation and I, it's funny you say Chicago because when I was interviewing Steve Stout he said he goes you know the reason why his friends in Chicago said <clears throat> They said to him, uh, the reason why we don't go to Star Rock is because you had murders there. And he said, well, the reason why I don't go to Chicago is because you had fire, you know. <laughs> and it's and like, a lot more murders. Put, and every day there's a murder in Chicago. <laughs> exactly. Did you guys see um, on 4th of July how many killings we had? Like, it was yep. all over the news. Man, it's just not, crazy. Not that I'm now, proud of it, but we're trying to catch up here in Louisville. There's like a shooting every day here. So, I mean, I don't know what the hell's going on in this world. If I'm not mistaken, Trump sent about 1,500 troops just to Chicago alone to decrease the crime rate that's happening. It's it's just insane. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, man. Um, But yeah, it did have an effect on the entire community. I know that my parents uh, and other people around there were scared to go to the park. or they had heard, I guess my parents were born in 1962, so it was after the case. And I was born in 1991, so I know mm-hmm. I'm coming into this very late in the game, too. And mm-hmm. I think uh, Steve Stout actually wrote the book 20 years after Chester was actually convicted. But, yeah, so, I mean, everybody's playing catch-up, trying to figure out what's going on, you know. Yeah. And I think so, the – go on, go on. Oh, I was going to say, Steve Stout was a perfect, you know, place to start with the whole thing. I mean, I think out of anybody, he knows more about the case than anybody. Uh, Aside from the, you know, Cherry Mind disaster, these are the two things that he's an absolute expert about. And if you put it in the time, you know, in the research that he did, I mean, you're you're talking to, I mean, once he goes, like one day when he passes away, there's not going to be a lot of people left with this type of knowledge of what happened because record keeping is just not that great, you know. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it? I only had to ask him, like, if I asked Steve one question, he was just off and going, and he just laid everything out for me. It was pretty nice. Um, but 
Yeah, I don't know what you want me to talk about in terms of like my journey in terms of the filmmaking process, but uh, let's well, let's see. start with your journey. Let's start with your journey through the whole thing. Okay. Did you go visit Starved Rock, and then that's where you met Steve Stout, or did you give him a call? I, I know he's got some <coughs> info online for people. Oh wait, the Facebook thing. But did you yeah, actually visit Facebook. Starved Rock first? Yeah, so I had been to Starve Rock many a time. So probably I'd say on average twice a year, especially during the fall season. Um, in fact, I think now they've had to extend the parking lot and they have a shuttle that goes from outside Starve Rock to take people into the park because it's become such a plentiful location during the fall season. It's crazy. Um and what else was there that I saw? I, I just went uh, not too long ago, actually. Um, uh, the book that Steve wrote, it's funny because before this year, I've always seen that book in the gift shop. And then this year I went in, whether it was sold out or not, I don't know, but I couldn't find anything that Steve had written in the shop, especially the murders. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe it's sold out, but they may be trying to, you know, cover up the past because uh, a lot of people don't know about the murders. If you go around and you ask anyone in the park, they don't know that they existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few of the employees that I interviewed there, yeah, they know about it. They've been there for about 14 or 15 years. Eventually word gets around, but it feels like it's all been, you know, thrown under the rug a little bit. Yeah, whenever I talked to Ray Johnson, he was talking about that, you know, when he was there, he was watching these little kids play in the exact spot where the bodies were found. And it was just yeah. eerie to see, you know, and obviously he didn't clue them into the, where they're playing. But, you know, right. I, I could I could see that viewpoint, you know, where, you know, they don't want to kill the tourist attraction. But on the other hand, I got to kind of think, like, there's an, you know, if you talk about the Civil War, nobody thinks that, you know, you don't bat an eye. People died in those right. places, too, and people still want to visit you know, it. So exactly. It's just an odd a, thing that, you know, where you can't really promote it so much, but I don't know about covering it up. That just seems like a strange thing to do. Right. Well, I mean, it's kind of, uh, what was I thinking about Ray? what Ray said? He, um, uh, he said, uh, I don't remember what he said. <laughs> that was something I was thinking about. But, um, yeah, no, overall, though, the the park itself, I mean, you got 19 canyons there. There's canoeing. There's biking. You can go cross-country skiing during the winter. Uh, when the falls freeze over, you can go ice climb up the falls themselves. I've seen people do that. Um, it's just a remarkable place. Uh, a lot of weddings are hosted there. Their lodge. Uh, I, I can see that. And then, the 1930s. They got that overlook uh, place for everything of that nature. Um, the foods there, the foods there is amazing. It's just overall an amazing place. Um, but who would have thought it just had this tragic history attached to it? So that's oh, yeah. kind of what attracted me to the project, really. The the about contrast 10, between the two. About 10 days ago, some some hiker, I think some girl, actually fell like 20 feet there. Uh, oh yeah. I was kind of looking through Twitter for Star Rock just to see who mentioned it lately, and I saw that come up, and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Yep. Two people, I think, on average, pass from just wandering off the paths and just falling. Two people a year. It's probably gone up because the po- <laughs> more people are coming to the park. But, you know, even when I'm there, you got kids just climbing up on the rocks 
they discourage you mm-hmm. from doing it, but kids, they don't really think until they're like 30. So there you go. So, Your documentary gives like, a, a great picture of the park. Can you kind of paint a picture yeah. with words uh, uh, as to what it looks like to you? You know what I mean? Just the feelings right. that you get when you go there. Ray talked about how it wasn't eerie or anything like that other than, you know, seeing the kids playing that park. But just in general, um, because it, the pictures I've seen and the video that you've taken, it looks absolutely mm-hmm. breathtaking. Like it's a it's a right. um, destination spot for me. It's not that far away. Right. So I'd like to go. Um, what I did set out to showcase, and what I've spoken about a little bit, is the contrast between the past and the present, and about how um, when I tried to highlight the park, I really wanted to showcase the park as it is today, and I, I used a lot of. Uh, steady jib shots and like just really smooth camera angles um color um from the leaves of the trees um like you were actually there you could see the wind blowing through everything people just with their families and just socializing and enjoying nature and just loving life in general and um that's uh what I tried to capture uh for the establishment of the location and then uh, kind of delve into the more darker areas uh, with the canyon and uh, different aspects of the lodge and the, the kitchen, um, different things of that nature. But yeah, the park, it go on, go on. Oh, I was going to say one thing that I was absolutely floored by how good it was, and this is seriously, and I tip my cap to you, was the recreation <laughs> or recreation of the um, confession, uh, that whole thing was done exceptional. Like, I, I couldn't believe that it was done by just a documentary. You know, well, you know what I mean? It just seemed amazing. The actual footage the uh, where you see, uh, you mean not the har- historical archive footage, right? Because that wasn't a right. reenactment. That's the real footage. The I think the, the reenaction portion, though, you, I believe there was a part where it was like, um, where guys we go to the talk. canyon right there you go that's the part okay. That I mean. okay alright I uh, I know what you're saying I uh, yeah I just muted the colors down I tried to make it look like it was aged um, but no I never really brought in any actors to reenact on screen or anything like that it was mm-hmm. all yeah. the historical archive footage from NBC in New York so and I don't even think I have a, a legal right to use that stuff, but I have it. <laughs> well, you didn't make money remember. off of it, technically, right? So no, if you're not exactly. making money off of it, I guess That's you can get I away with it. it. Exactly. And you can't really distribute that stuff to the festival circuit because it isn't owned by you. You'd have to right. pay for it. And I looked into that as well because I was interested in distributing this and getting the word out even more. But for every... 30 or what was it every second worth of film i think it was going to cost me about 500 to a thousand dollars worth of money it's just that's just crazy so too rich for put a halt on that yeah (laughs) one thing i was uh really curious about okay so you got to talk to steve and you got to talk to some other people around there employees uh, etc and did you ever aspire to talk to Chester Weger? I mean, he's still around. He's yeah. still in prison. Um, you know, I never saw that, anything where you got to talk to him, though. 
Correct. Uh, but here's what I was working out, and we were supposed to meet up this July, actually, but he never got back to me. Over the course of about one year's time, I think I started sending him letters, handwritten letters to him um, in 2016, uh, probably around October. And we had negotiated. Uh, he sent me back several letters, both of which he didn't really get the point of my letters. I really wanted to bring a crew in, sit down with him and interview him personally. And uh, he actually gave me his consent. He said, I am giving Hunter and his crew full permission to come in, interview me in uh, Pickneyville Correctional Center. And he has my right to use my image and my voice and all of that. We got that approved. And I was currently locking down a date with him and he became unresponsive when it came to that. Um, and we never got any letters, but I will say it was, he was going up for another parole hearing. And I think there just wasn't enough turnaround time to get that locked down. So that kind of got tossed to the side. So in about a couple months after Christmas, I'd say in February sometime, I sent him another letter. I said, Hey, I'd like to interview you in July when I come back to Illinois and he said, uh, well, he didn't get back, actually. <laughs> and uh, that was the last I ever heard from him. And uh, we haven't spoken since. But the letters that he did continue to send me, he did give me permission to use his image and his voice and come record him. But he also sent me two other letters on top of that, both of which he went into great detail in uh, very circular thought pattern about the uh, the reasons as to why he is innocent. He um, he became it seemed through his writing very defensive uh, throughout the entirety of the the letter itself. I think he sent me at least 15 pages of handwritten letter. Um, but yeah, it just it kind of kind of informed me a little bit about his character a little bit, but also I personally am one of those people that I didn't want to communicate through writing as well. Uh, so I said, I'd rather get this from you in person when I come to interview you. And mm -hmm. uh, he said, I understand that. And then I never heard from him. So I don't know what happened. Maybe he saw the film that I put together with Steve and he thought, oh, okay, I don't want to deal with this guy. I don't know. But, and also, Do you I still mean, have like, those letters? I still have all the letters. I could send those over to you, man. I, I would love to see those. I would absolutely oh, yeah. love to see that. Absolutely, man. Um, uh, and then I could put it up on our website for everybody to see whatever you want me to do. I mean, I would love to help you out in any way. You know, shape okay, or form. Cool, I'm, yeah. I, I'm always like, I want to write to prisoners, but I don't want to write to prisoners. I don't know how to yeah. start. You know what I mean? Like, because I don't know what to say to these guys. Most of my things exactly. are guilty anyway, and so I'm not going to exactly. bullshit them. And I don't want them to bullshit <laughs> me either. So it's very right. hard, you know. And I, I'm impressed right. with the fact that you were able to just jump in with it that way. Uh, was well, it easy you know to just I, jump in? No, I tell you, I came at it exactly the way you did. You know, I've never been to a prison before. I've never, um, you know, communicated with someone, but I really feel the need to, and I, I, I honestly do want to know his side of the story. 
And I just said, I want to get the truth out. I want to get you heard. Please let me know how we can do this and arrange it to happen. And, um, that, but I went about it the same way you might have been, just being very honest with them. I've never, I don't feel, I wouldn't say uncomfortable or anything, but it kind of is new to me, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, I know there's a story that we need to tell here, and I want to make sure that, you know, we tell it right. So Absolutely. Yeah. What was the weird other documentary. Thing that he, he mentioned in the letters, this was one thing, uh, he mentioned... Um, this girl, when he was younger, uh, she was about 10 or 12 years old, and I don't exactly know where he was in space and time, and I think he was around the same age. I think he may have been 14, and I don't know where this was documented, but he wrote this in the letter, and he said that she came to him, and she was bleeding, and I'm, I'm going to use some more graphics, but she was bleeding from her vagina, and uh-huh what happened was that he instinctively tore off part of his shirt and he, I think he may have gone to a remote location in the area he was and he put the piece of shirt on her vagina because it was bleeding. And the police obviously told him that this would be, I guess, constituted sexual harassment, right? Uh, Hold on, I'm confirming with my girlfriend right now. <laughs> not sexual harassment but um for some reason he was charged uh with something but he was younger so it didn't really like apply as harshly as it might have later uh and then but he worded it in the letter as if there was nothing wrong with what he did um no issue with it uh, like this was completely normal behavior for someone to just rip off their clothes and put it on someone's bleeding wound, especially in a place like that. Um, and I'm trying to think of what else. He, he just he went in a lot of circles in the writing, but that was one uh, situation that popped out to me. And uh, kind of like, Oh, she was, uh, the little girl was attacked. I don't know if you've come across this at all. She was attacked, and then Chester's mm-hmm. the one that found her, he says. Did you read anything like that? Any uh, situation like I, that? I've, I've seen some interviews with other people that are like, oh, they're trying to pin this on them now, too, you know, and right. I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of it. It was one of those things that I came across right. later on. So Right. I'll tell you, um, one interview and i've got a few other facts that kind of haven't been documented or i've seen out and about lately um what would you like to know and tell me what you want to know man i'll tell you what you know what anything regarding chester wigger is it we barely got into him with ray only because we were kind of telling the story which the story has been told by steve by us by you So, so anything that has not been covered is not like highlighted in your documentary. By God, you feel free. Okay, because um, this uh, this documentary is not done. I am I've been so busy with other projects. It's not like mm-hmm. I am working on this one. And uh, but uh, there was this one interview that I collected, and uh, it was addressed from and who I was, the subject of it was Alice Rona. 
Alice Rona is a friend of Chester's, and she's been in contact with him since she was probably 12 years old. He was 12, and I think she was about the same age. And she has a brother named Harold. Now, this is a very interesting part of the case because it's often it's often been uh, up for discussion whether or not Chester did the crime at all or whether he had helped doing the crime or... I mean, like, there are tons of speculation as to what could happen. And I've been in contact with the Free Chester Uyghur Movement, and Mm -hmm. people from their side of the story have uh, willingly contacted me, and they have sent me a lot of photos, documents, supporting their side of the story. uh, Steve Stout's book does address everything that's against Chester. It points him at the scene of the crime, and mm-hmm. uh, the Free Chester Uyghur movement's doing the exact same thing, but the opposite. So, Alice, I'm going to tell you about her story of uh, how she believes her brother is the one that committed the murders. And um, I'll let you guys be the deciding. <laughs> Everyone else decide for yourself here. Because uh, mm-hmm. when I actually made, when I decided to make the film, I did not want to take. I wanted to be uh, as objective as possible and let everyone just draw their own conclusions to, and I don't want to like force feed anyone. You know, this is something that has supporters on both sides, really. Um, So Harold uh, growing up was not the most obedient child, I would say. In fact, he, uh, a lot of the times would beat Alice And again, Alice was uh, Chester's friend growing up. And I believe Harold and Chester were good buddies as well. Well, Alice went on to tell me about how Chester had dated several women. And every time she went into talking about women in general, she spoke as if Chester had a high respect for them. And I feel as though that's been like kind of put in there ever since he's been pinned with the murders themselves because of the women themselves. Um, But every time she says he's a high respecter of women, Uh, let's see, even these two women that had dated Chester spoke highly of him. But at the same time, uh, let's see, here we go. I wrote down some notes here. Let's see. Okay, so before 1960, Apparently, this entire crime had been set up. This is news to me. Okay, so in 1958 and 59, Harold was in prison. And I don't know what crime he did, but he was in prison, and his inmates chose him to do this crime. This could be so outlandish, I know, but just bear with me, okay? So Mm -hmm. they chose Harold to do this crime because he knew the area, the LaSalle County area. And he had a job to do with his friends. <clears throat> Alice swears that her brother did this crime. She um, very emotional. She literally broke down in tears telling me this entire interview. And I, uh, I'm going to incorporate this into the, the final documentary that I'm making. But she went on to explain that uh, she knew that he had, Harold had friends but she didn't have any names of who he was involved with. Um, 
And the deal was that all the women were to die. And apparently, apparently it was all to do, and I'm sure you've heard rumor that the husbands uh, put, hired a bounty hunter to have them killed. Um, mm-hmm. Except for Mrs. O'Edding's uh, husband. He did not want this to happen. And, but regardless, all three of the women had to die. Now, I know there was four initially planned to set out from Star of Rock, but I guess it was only the three. She never spoke about the fourth one at all. Um, uh, let's see, what else did she say? So when Harold got released from prison in 1959, he then orchestrated this entire operation. Um, let's see. Uh, okay, so, and then she informs me that the women were not killed inside of the canyon. And I don't know if you've heard about these rumors of aliens <laughs> killing the women. I just, there's so many stories that I've heard. Uh, but one of the more common ones that Alice, uh, this is the one she says happened, that um, the women were taken from the canyon to Harold's house. And I'm not sure where he lived at the time, but apparently he beat them and bludgeoned them to death. And then using a car, they took the bodies in the car and lowered a car down into the base of the canyon at St. Louis Canyon and then dragged the bodies up into the cave. That's how she says this whole operation went down. And I've heard about the the whole lowering the car into the canyon and all that. That's a very common thing amongst people who are against or uh, for Chester. I mean, uh, have you heard anything about the car? Just out of curiosity, I have not. Honestly, um, it's 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 one of those things where it's like I've heard all sorts of stories about it. And one of yeah. the things that Steve was, yeah, yeah. or Ray was talking about was that. Uh, one of them said that, you know, the one that committed the murders had also committed, like, the Schuster sisters' murders, and it's like, or the Schuster-Peterson <laughs> yeah, murders. Yeah. And, yeah and so it's like, I really respect your ability to be able to kind of, it's not that you're, like, siphoning that out. You're letting it right. be instead of giving an opinion. So that's tough. I, I, I have to tell you, I'm too much of an opinionated person to keep my mouth shut. So um, more power <laughs> for being a director and able to do that. Yeah, well, uh, you know what I was, uh, in the moment, I literally was just asking her all sorts of questions in terms of, well, why do you think uh, he did that and this? And just not even bringing up, it's, you know, it's about gearing the conversation toward what you've read from Steve Stout's book and mm-hmm. gearing that information to pose questions that uh, are in opposition to what she's saying. So... That was fun, but at the same time, you keep an open mind, and um, you know you just want to tell both sides of the story because I, I don't want to, you know, this this was a an objective point of view for me. Um, what else did she say? Let's see. She wouldn't point out who else she thought did this. Oh yeah, so she said, she goes, uh, did Harold have help? And she said, yes, he did. And I said, can you point out who you might think have, or you, who you know or might have known to do this? And she said, no, I don't want to be sued. 
she says. And uh, she sees, uh, okay, now this is a side stuff, I guess. She sees Chester twice a year. They talk about what he reads. Uh, she says that he's very educated. And when I interviewed Steve Stout, uh, did you guys get a chance to interview Steve yet? Or did you guys now, just I've talk spoken personally? to Steve. I've spoken to Steve, okay. but I have not gotten to interview him yet. We we haven't been able to connect on a date yet, and I think he's kind of oh, busy. Cool. But yeah, I'll put that together at some point, just because I'm so fascinated by the whole thing. I mean, I want to talk oh, yeah. to anybody I possibly can about it. So. Oh yeah, Steve. Steve knows everything as much as Ray does, and I'm like way off, just doing my film thing, you know. But uh, mm-hmm. no, it's. Um, but when I spoke to Steve, he specifically made mention of when he interviewed Chester. He made a point to tell me in the interview, he said he was a very educated and smart man. Um, and But what Steve said is he was a smart man for what I expected him to be. And he's had all this time, and according to Alice and everyone that I've spoken to, that Chester just reads all the time. He, they talk about the ocean. They talk about the places that he wants to go when he gets out. Um, so, you know, he's a very educated guy and he's had a lot of time to think about everything that happened in this case, whether it was true or not. He's had a lot of time to think about it. So he had an answer for Steve and every single question he asked him, I'll let you get into that with Steve when you guys set the date. But, uh, yeah, he had an answer for everything. It seems like, and when I got my letter from him, the letters, he you know, he had it all written out specifically. Mind you, it was circular pattern of thought, but he had it all down. Um, you know, Julie didn't, my girlfriend here, uh, didn't he contradict himself a few times in the letters as well? You guys heard all that, right? I was open. No, I didn't catch it actually. Sorry, I, I heard. Oh, it. I I'm so sorry, you. man. It's okay. But uh, basically, she—he's uh, learned to disassociate himself. It seems like through the writing alone, from the actual case, he believes that what he did—it um, fits whatever his narrative is. Um, but he doesn't like look at the entire picture. Am I wording that mm-hmm. correctly? From what you said, Julie. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's basically what I have found. Uh, a few things that I actually came across in my research here. Um, the evidence that we found at the crime scene, let's see. Uh, when Harlan Warren, I don't know if you want to go into this at all, but... and Feel free. But Harlan, okay. Harlan Warren, during that... Uh, during the time when all the evidence and nothing was happening and he just decided I'm going to bring all the evidence into my room and he sat it down there and I know that you've already spoken to Ray about all this. The only foreign object from the scene of the crime was the twine. Um, uh, let me get, let me talk about the twine here in a second. Um, 
talk about the the actual let's see the camera i don't this is irrelevant information about how that camera was an argus c3 and about how the photos they were proven to have been taken at like 223 or something like that so they estimate it was like a quarter to three when the women got to the canyon or were murdered and also mm-hmm. from the autopsy of the food in their stomach but the uh the camera when they snapped the photo whoever i forgot who had the photos uh the camera i think it was um Oedian. but when she wound the camera she didn't quite wind the the camera itself and when that happens images would overlap one another and when they took it to uh, be examined the a tree over a tree made it look like it was another individual in the frame and that got out and went on the news media and everything um did you guys talk about this in another interview at all (laughs) um you know, it's funny. I don't think I talked about it. I've heard Steve talk about it before, but I don't think we got okay. into that, that there was the idea that they actually took a picture of their would-be killer. Right. Well, that it's all irrelevant because it was the news media making something out of nothing. And Yeah, we talked about them doing that all over exactly. the place. Every little yeah. thing was them. Everything. I mean, it's just, like I said, you know, two weeks ago, it's just like now. Any little thing that comes out oh, with yeah. anything, they'll blow it up. The media, you can't, oh, yeah. like in 1960, they believed everything, but now nobody would believe anything they say. Oh, that's another thing. Uh, talking about, I'm going to come back to this, but police brutality, a lot of the times on the news media, you see police, um, you know, abusing someone, but what they don't show you is the first lead up to it about how that subject or whatever was harassing mm-hmm. the cop, and then you see the actions they had to take. That's the part that gets on the news media. You know, it's like <laughs> they totally neglect the fact of how it started, and they make police out to be the bad guys a lot of the time. That's not true all the time, well, but that's how the yeah. media runs. Well, that it. gets ratings, and I always say the people that run yep. should get at least a little bit of an ass whipping. <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> each have to run. There you go. Um, yep. Let's see here. Uh, so the the twine the twine that they uh found oh let me go back oh, the wood the wood um mm-hmm. that that chunk of wood that was frozen solid they actually took to be examined and it went to uh Dr. Kuchla up in Madison, Wisconsin and he revealed to everyone that the wood had been exposed to fire 5 years ago so I'm pretty sure it was Harlan Warren that actually took that bit of evidence and he spoke to a custodian that had been there for quite a while. And the custodian told him that there was in fact a fire that occurred above the falls up above St. Louis Canyon. And what would have happened was that driftwood came down the falls, landed where the actual murders happened. And that's how the branch, the frozen tree branch came to be. And that's totally irrelevant information too, but I just, it's interesting to see the amount of detail that the detectives had to go through to figure out each and every piece of evidence that was brought to them. In fact, I think there were 2,200 leads to this entire case, 2,200 leads. So that was just one of them. (laughs) Um, Let's see, what else was there? The, 
the jacket that they took from Chester, I'm just jumping around all over little bits and pieces of information. It's okay. uh, One thing you talked about was the branch, and I hadn't even really discussed that. One thing before you get into this next thing, I was going to ask you, do you know where the branch is now? Because as of about seven years ago, I think it was with one of the detectives' families, like, uh, um, hardened and on their mantle. It was, it was really weird. I don't know. Oh, my God. Geez, you think that would be preserved? Maybe we get some better technology and be able to tell the blood, you know? It's like, come on. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that technology back then, but who knows? Um, uh, that's news to me. I don't know what happened to the branch. So, um Let's see. In terms of uh, the jacket that they, the detectives asked Chester for after his, I think it was uh, after his polygraph test, I think it was in Chicago um, with John Reed. Uh, what was it? He After that, they collected his jacket and they examined it and they found that there were, uh, there was blood pattern the blood pattern, uh, pattern had been splattered in every direction, uh, which correlated to if he had done the murders, that specific crime, you know. But I think his reasoning, Chester said, was that his wife had a chicken, and uh, when she butchered the chicken or something like that, blood got on his jacket. But by no means would it be splattered in every single direction on his jacket. Just mm-hmm. that's just another little tidbit there. Um, the plane going overhead—that's like another big crucial part of this. But I'll tell you what the Free Chester Uyghur movement are saying about the plane: is that uh, when he was forced to sign that confession at like two in the morning, uh, that plane was in the transcript. It was written down in there. But when he did the reenactment. They never asked him, I'm assuming because, I don't know, I mean, they were watching him reenact the entire crime for them. I mean, the detectives were down in the place of the women. He was showing them exactly what happened. Um, And I guess uh, that question never came up. And they have an issue with that because they believe that Wayne Hess and Bill Dummett when they were interrogating him, that they specifically planted that bit in the actual confession. I find it hard to believe because (laughs) according to what Steve Stout has told me is that that night when he did confess, they had multiple people in that room, probably a total of eight to nine people. And I'm not going to lie. They probably, I mean, there's, uh, was it, I was speaking to Alice, and Alice told me, informed me that he had a fat lip. I think he had his head slammed down on the table. I'm not going to lie. I believe that he was physically forced to sign that confession. But every word out of his mouth, I do believe, was probably pretty accurate. And another thing that Steve um, has spoken of is the court reporter. Uh, what was her name? I think it was... Thompson something. Um, And Thompson, I mean, according to Steve Stout, had a family. You know, she had a a husband. She had three or four kids. Why would she lie 
about what went down in that confession room. I don't know. You know? Mm-hmm. I think she wrote down every word that he said he did, you know? And when he did that reenactment, I mean, you can tell from the film I put together, the actual archive footage, you can see him, you know, totally orchestrating the entire operation. It's him showing exactly how it went down. To me, it's kind of, you know, irrefutable, indisputable. I don't know, <laughs> you know? It, 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 it seems to be, absolutely. I, I wanted yeah. to, I tried to join a few of the uh, Facebook groups, the, the free Chester Wigger ones, and none of them let me in. I just wanted to see what they had to say, you know what I mean? So I had to kind of go other places to see, you know, where this yeah. stuff was coming from. Uh, I think I am on there, actually, but I don't really, uh, I don't know why I got let in. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I was, uh, probably because they didn't see the film, but, uh, but um, I have gotten a lot of prank calls um, from, I forgot, David Marsh. That's his name. Uh, totally call him out for his, uh, you know, his just unprofessional nature. David Marsh called me up one night, and I'm told he's a drunk. And he calls me up, and he goes, Hunter, hey, this is David Marsh. Just want to let you know that. I think you're a scumbag. You and Steve Stout are ridiculous. He goes on and on and on, okay? And he goes, you're just doing this case because you want to progress your film career and all that. And I could tell right then and there, I must have been doing a good job if he's calling me out, uh, out of everyone that's been making films about this, you know? But, Mm -hmm. you know, in a way, this was a personal story for me. And yeah, I would like to progress my career too. <laughs> oh, Nothing uh, wrong with that. Oh, and then at the end of this, David, at the end of the call, the voicemail, he didn't, I didn't answer the phone, but he left the voicemail. I think I actually might still have that. Definitely pass that over to you as well. But um, he said, enjoy your life in hell. And I was just like, what? <laughs> it's just... <laughs> I know he's not speaking for the entirety of the Free Chester Uyghur movement, but that mm-hmm. one situation just kind of, you know, was odd. Um, and I know Steve has received many calls as well regarding his book. Um, and, you know, no, you sure didn't know part of the cover up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Part of the cover up. Exactly. <laughs> By the way, David Marsh, exactly. I just want to let you know if you're listening to this podcast because apparently you have an interest in uh, what our boy here is doing. Um, you give a bad name to drunks everywhere. So if you're calling people up and harassing them, <laughs> you're making us look bad. I just wanted to let you, <laughs> let you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, another uh, little note I wrote down, uh, a lot of people are arguing why, when, you know, it's been discussed if Chester could do this by himself, you know, it's, um, he had a way of talking them into it, uh, in my opinion, but, uh, what was the, uh, this is a similar story to what happened at Matheson, you know, I'm sure you know about that one where the Mm -hmm. teenagers were out there on their date and he talked the girl into tying up her boyfriend. 
he never physically touched them, but he had everyone else do his dirty work. Ties the guy up, and he goes off and rapes her. Now, a similar situation could have happened where, obviously, this was never a crime of murder at all, okay? That was the initial um, point. It was never a crime of murder. It was a crime of a robbery that went awry. That's it. So once that was established, probably fell out of place, didn't want them reporting him because they had obviously seen his face at that point, talked him into being tied up. Um, And a lot of people discuss why after, and I forgot who was it, um, that broke free of her bonds first. Um, Was it Oedding, I think? Um, that's one thing I don't know. I think it's O'Edding because that's the first one. I mean, that's the one he was uh, convicted of. Yeah. And I believe once she broke free of her bonds, a lot of people say, why didn't she? This, these are just irrelevant information. But it's like Free Chester Weaker Movement throw these things at you, and they're totally not even <laughs> a point to the case. What they'll say is, why didn't she untie her two friends or why didn't she do anything else aside from attack him from the back? And what it really comes down to is just psychological behavior here where it's a fight, flight, or freeze situation. You know, when someone's confronted with danger, these are the things that they might do. She could have ran out of there. She could have helped her friends. We don't know, okay? But Mm -hmm. I think it's logical to understand that she was, you know, she decided to fight in this situation, take him down, uh, hit him over the head, and he, you know, obviously grabbed whatever he could and was the frozen tree branch, which uh, another thing that I'm remembering right now, the husbands had, if they even considered hiring a hitman to come down here, they would have brought a weapon. They would have brought a knife. They would have brought a gun. Nobody goes down there empty-handed So it was a crime that completely happened in the moment, not expected. Somebody had to be there to use the stick as a weapon, you know. It's not something that was planned. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing is it's pretty easy to explain what she did. I mean, Steve talks about this, and and I'll get into it later with Steve, hopefully. But, you know, he talks about, think about where they were. There was no getting away. There was no running. She wouldn't get exactly. away at this point. This guy knew the area better than her, you know, and exactly. so you fight. And that's what she did. She was killed for it. Oh, Although I have to I have to tell you, I was pretty amused by Ray's response when I talked about it. He was like, yeah. Didn't he start laughing? He's like, well, because the whole thing was that he's being attacked, so he hits the girl with the, the branch and didn't mean to kill her. And the point the point was, it's like, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, happened to me last laughing. Week. Yeah, yeah. Ray Ray's very down to earth about this type of thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? He doesn't just believe yeah, anything people say. I mean, he was a cop. Absolutely. Was, so. Yep, yep. Um, uh, what was I gonna say here? Um, I don't remember. But um, yeah, man. Uh, the the whole situation with that, she fought back. I'm trying to think. Oh man, there was something important. Ah, whatever. Sure, everyone else has heard about it. Whatever I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. 
Hey, is there anybody left from the case? I mean, other than Chester, um, because uh, is everybody dead? Like the detectives? I know the DAs passed away, but is there anybody else uh, to talk to who was actually around and involved at the time? Uh, you know who I was talking to, and he's a little elderly right now. Um, he's uh, Harlan Warren's son. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was interested in interviewing with me as well. And I've been so busy that I haven't been able to keep in contact with him. I asked him, I said, let me know if we can reschedule something for when I come back to Illinois. And uh, I haven't heard back from him since, but he uh, had a few friends of his that wanted to speak on the case. But I forgot his his name, but Harlan Warren's son. Mm. Um, But yeah, he was a... It was a good contact. But aside from anyone else that is alive right now, I don't know. I spoke to one of the officers who I think, what was it? Uh, was it George Spiros? He ran the lodge. Nick, and, uh, uh, Nick, Nick, Sir Nick George? Spiros. Well, I can't remember. It was either Nick or George, but who was the one? Did you hear whoever committed suicide? Do you know who that was? I think it was George who killed himself, but Nick actually ran the lodge. So George uh, okay, was the son, I think. Yeah. I, I'm trying to get it together in my mind, but I'm pretty sure that's the way it is, and I'm a couple of drinks in, so I'm doing my best. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um, well, but uh, when I, I was talking to an officer who actually found uh, the uh, suicide and how he was, he shot his dog and he shot mm-hmm. his, uh, himself, um, right after I forgot what happened he would you know a lot of people and this is terrible but they're blaming um Nick Spiros is his son right so mm-hmm. no no one, Nick, I think Nick's the one that worked at the lodge and George was the son I could be wrong I'll look it up right now to find out but oh, okay um but whoever the younger one was he was equivalent in age to Chester at the time of the murder and a lot of people pinned the murder on the son and I mm-hmm. thought to myself, you know, if you are ever going to pin someone with murder or just even suppose it was someone else, you better be dang sure if you're going to spread that rumor around, you know, especially, yep. I mean, that's, that's nothing to even suppose about. And uh, another thing is that a lot of people thought the son was guilty because the father had him sent off uh, out of the country right after the murders happened. And I don't know why. That's just, you know, it's people grasping at straws, hoping that it's another person other than Chester, in my yeah. opinion. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a um, a parallel to this case with some of the things. First of all, it is George Spiros. He, or Spiros, he died in okay. uh, 2005, and he was 73. Uh, yeah. Self-inflicted gunshot wound. So there you go. There you go. Um, the Chris Benoit case, and I don't know if you remember the Benoit family tragedy, um, wrestling fans, um, myself included, we reached for everything to blame somebody else just because we liked Benoit. He was a wrestler that we respected. And, you know, I'm sure like OJ Simpson fans felt this way too. You know what I mean? Where they're looking, they want to blame somebody else because they like this person. And at the end of the day, they just can't accept the facts. And, you know, I think this is one of those cases. Right. Exactly. Um, but, again, I uh, I hate siding with 
the uh, as as a filmmaker, I'm trying to keep an objective perspective mm-hmm. on all of this, just because I don't want to create waves. Um, but I was just trying to document both sides of the story. Do I believe that Chester actually did the crime? Yes, I do. Did he do it alone? Yes, he did. I don't. That's my belief. Hey, there's there's a lot of debate whether or not he could physically pull off this entire operation with dragging. These women weren't like they were fairly large women. I'm probably guessing maybe 170 pounds, 180 somewhere. Yeah, yeah, just under 200 maybe. They were fairly large women, but they were physically active. Um, you know, healthy. Um, and you got to wonder could. Chester have dragged their bodies. The dragging portion, I think, is what people get hung up on because it's a dead corpse getting dragged over there. Now, here's something that a lot of people haven't spoken about, and I'm going to let you in on it. When they found the bodies, they were aligned to make it look like a rape. Two of the bodies Mm -hmm. were adjacent to one another. One of them was about an arm's length away. When they found them... They identified each of the ladies, not by their name. They couldn't even tell the women apart. That's how bad they were bludgeoned. But when the detectives came in, they put, they labeled them as A, B, and C. And that's, that's how they did the opera, that. But the other thing was um, when they found the bodies and when they melted the snow with blowtorches and whatnot, the leaves had been moved away from their vaginas. And Hmm. I started to think to myself, because it's been often speculated if rape actually occurred. Now, the Free Chester Uyghur Movement don't believe that uh, rape, uh, you can't, can't, there was no way to figure that out because they didn't have DNA uh, testing at the time. There was, the, the technology didn't exist. But, If you had just killed these women and you put their bodies here and you staged it to look like a rape and you move the leaves away, why would you move the leaves other than the fact that you wanted to go down on them and not get dirty? That's a hell of a point. You know, the thing I thought about is he had a history with this, obviously. We talked about Mathis. and uh, So, right. yeah, there's the connection there, but you make a good point as well that I hadn't even thought about. I knew about the clothes on their vagina, but I didn't know about the tree, you know, the uh, leaves being moved. That's interesting. The leaves had been moved, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, and then there was another thing, the Matheson State case. Um, I believe they asked the girl who's uh, when they dismissed the couple, um, when they uh, asked her, were his pants off? She didn't quite remember. But I'm not sure how someone might perform that, obviously, but they seem awfully similar. Mm-hmm. Because I believe Chester would take his pants off and not to get them dirty, he moved the leaves again. and It all makes sense to me. And that's what I personally believe happened. But I mean, no it way makes total sense. sense. Yeah, and that's what this case but, is about. I, I feel like this case is all about logic, and, and just like Steve said, right. look at the evidence. Look at 
these different things. And, okay. you know, it even says so in your documentary. And you didn't say so. You didn't need to say so. You laid it out with right. the things, with the interviews, with the evidence. <clears throat> I'm not saying that right. the guy didn't get railroaded, but that didn't mean he didn't do it. I mean, we talked about right. that. You know that. So, I mean, it's just um, it's unfortunate that there's, there's still mystery surrounding it, but I feel like there's mystery surrounding every case like this. And I think that's I think True. that's the funny thing is that people just don't talk about it most of the time. Once a case is wrapped up, it's wrapped up for most people. They don't continue to talk about it. But I guess because Chester has some sort of charisma or he's likable, people, you know, are willing to defend him. I don't know how to think about it any other way, you know? Yeah. According to Steve, when he interviewed him, you would look and talk to this man and think there's no way in the world that this guy could have done the crime when you see him today. And he just is a very nice guy. Um, but you think about all the circumstantial evidence that puts him at the scene of the crime. Uh, you're, you're talking the twine, you're talking the, uh, he worked there. He failed the polygraph test. Um, he, uh, the, the plane overhead, uh, everything points to this guy. As and Steve said the same exact thing on my interview here, but you know it's just it's hard to you know uh, find evidence that supports him. And another thing that Steve spoke about was uh, he goes, "If I had proved that Chester Weger was an innocent man, I'd be a hero." He said, and that's true. Yeah. He would have conquered what all these detectives and all these all the man hours that went into doing this, uh, and he would have solved it. But you know the reason why uh, the book is as it is is because I believe it's the true story, and everyone that in the Chester Uyghur movement they're trying to sway people another way. But if you really know all the information, you would believe that Chester was the person that did this. Now, I know that Ray believes that someone else was involved, but he never he pointed out who, point. I would say, right? Yeah, he, he doesn't what? know who. He thinks a family member, obviously, because, you know, that's the type that's of person right. he wouldn't roll over on, which I don't right. know who or what or anything like that. He makes a good point. He, he does. I, I just personally, I feel like no matter how long you're in jail, no matter who did it, I'd roll over on somebody if I had to take the crime or oh, take, yeah. you know, take the rap for it. Oh yeah, I think I was I was thinking here. Um, after so long, you would roll over on someone, and then also, he has made mention of other people that may have done it, but never did he ever say that he and so and so did this. So, it's kind of understood in my head that it was him and him alone. I don't. Because Chester never said he had an accomplice. He is never at fault, ever, in anything that he's ever spoken of. Yeah, his original, evidence, his original confessions, I mean, and even if you talk to the uh, the one from the rapes, it was only yeah. Chester. There, he may have mentioned somebody else. That might have just been a threat, you know, but that's it. Yeah. There's no... There's no compelling evidence beyond that, so I don't think he worked with yep. anybody. He may have used as that as a threat, just the same as saying I have a gun without showing it. You know, right? So, exactly. I don't know. Exactly. Um, well, I tell you what, it sounds like my babies are awake now, so that'll mean that I'll have <laughs> good, to go upstairs man. and take care take care of that. But what I do want you to do is make sure that anything you're working about 
working on. I don't care whether it's you know you're you know completing the documentary or anything else you want to plug. Right. You get the time to do so. So feel free to you know direct everybody. You'll be getting an email from me here shortly okay. anyway with the link uh, for a download and uh, all that good stuff anyway. Okay, sounds good. I'll be sure to share that. Uh, hopefully, I didn't upset too many of the Chester Uyghur, uh free Chester Uyghur movement people too much. But uh, yeah, I already yeah, did I'm, that like two weeks ago, so <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, how do I? Uh, the other thing is, how do I feel about him getting released? I feel like um, at the same time, as bad as the crime was and how long he's served. I don't believe that he should be given the opportunity to be released because he never gave the women an opportunity to leave at all. You know, Mm -hmm. he trapped them much like people who uh, came to Starve Rock and trapped animals. They would chase them down the canyon and they would trap them just like he did, in my opinion. And I don't believe he should be paroled and I feel like he should, you know, finish out the rest of his days in prison um, I'm glad that he was not electrocuted because I feel like that was a wrong way to go. And I'm glad that decision wasn't made. And that's another thing Steve spoke of about how the reason why he wasn't electrocuted, um, was because his two children were sitting in the rows behind him. And if you're a juror, why would you, you know, sentence a man to death in front of his two babies, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's another point. And, but yeah, I, uh, he's the one that did this. He did it himself. And I believe he should stay there for the rest of his life, but I'm only 25 years old. And, uh, <laughs> what am I to make those decisions? You know, I came into this so you've done more research than most people though. Think about it that way. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, you probably knew more than jur- the jurors did. I mean, truth be told, you know, cause they're only allowed so much anyway, you know, think about all the things that yeah. they're not allowed. Yeah. But it's just, you, you know, know it, something interesting. The votes keep, uh, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago, he was one vote shy of being paroled, you know, and now it's back down to like half and half, but I eventually see him getting paroled eventually here. I just don't think he's going to be a danger to society much longer, but um, yeah, it all depends, I guess. But I think mm-hmm. he's going up, what was it, the 21st or 23rd parole here? I can't remember. I lost track. <laughs> um, yeah, there was just an article on it, like, Nine days ago. Not too long so, ago. I mean, it must be not far off. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that's probably why he hasn't responded to a letter I wrote him. But, uh, hey, uh, Travis, I'll send you everything I have, and you guys can publish it to your site. So. Oh, yeah, good. definitely. And do you, yeah, do you but, have any um, social media links that you want to, you know, share, your YouTube channel, anything like that? You know what? Yeah, I'll pass that along. Um, uh, my website is uh, hunterjamescox.com. And um, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram. Everything is the same. Hunter James Cox, spelled C-O-X. Um, yeah, so I'd love to hear. And if you guys have any information that you wish to pass along, can I give my phone number as well? Or is that like <laughs> for you shouldn't do that on a, a podcast right, or anything like that? If you're comfortable with it, I'm comfortable with it. I've never gotten any crazies harassing me, so I don't. I don't. Think okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't have an issue with it. If you have any information that you would like to include in terms of photos, documents, anything of that nature, I'd be happy to include this in this feature documentary that I am currently working on. And you can send that to my Gmail account, which is hunterjamescox at gmail.com. Or you can send it to, uh, you know, just if you have anything you wish to tell me over the phone or anything like that, my phone number is 815-992-2351. And, uh, yeah, so feel free to reach out to me. I'm available all the time. And if anybody sends anything to us, tnvhorror at gmail.com, I'll forward it to him. So, yeah, I'm happy to do so. Good you know, deal. Information exchange works here. So, Hunter, you are the man. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, no I know problem. you've no got problem. a busy set schedule. So you um, <laughs> had a nice little – I don't know if this is going to be the middle part or the bookend to our story here, but it's uh, great to have nonetheless. Absolutely. I talked to Steve Stout. He's the guy with all the answers, let me tell you. So Absolutely. if you get a hold of him, definitely try and get that happening. Lock down a date. I'll get on his back, too. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell him that, you know, we may be a drunk podcast, but we are professional. At least. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, man, definitely. So, All right, Hunter, hey, well, you take Travis, care, buddy, and, and thanks again. You too. Absolutely. Right, Thank care. you so much for having me. All right. And everybody, that's Hunter James Cox. Oh. And I tell you what, if you have not yet, Go check out his uh, documentary on YouTube. He's still like compiling it because it's not something for profit or anything like that. It's just, I guess it's one of those things where it's like you just trying to find the truth. I think we kind of know the truth, but there's always things that we can still find out. And uh, I think you touched on that earlier. So um, anyway, we had a nice little uh, special Sunday recording here. I'm going to get off here in just a second. You can email me at phenomenaltod at gmail.com. Travis and Vic, tnvhorror at gmail.com, travisandvichorror.wordpress.com. We're on Spreaker, Filling the Void Radio Network, or Filling the Void Podcast Network. Vic's at Vic Von Eric. Uh, Trav and Vic Horror, I believe, on Twitter. Um, Facebook, you know, we're on there as well. Look up Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. I'm going to head off, deal with some babies, have some drinks for tonight. And, uh, again, thank you to Hunter, and that was Starved Rock Murders Revisited. Uh, we will uh, be back on Tuesday to talk Son of Sam, David Berkowitz. Later on, everybody. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.